Good evening, church. Friday night. Wow. We cannot miss that. Come on. KRX. I mean, it even, even if I didn't know what it was, KRX just sounds cool, doesn't it? But I mean, food, right? We're in. All right. All right. Very good. It's going to be tremendous. Let me encourage you. uh, Be a part of that. We are so thrilled to have an expression of the kingdom here at Grace Covenant Church that is Korean. And this is just another expression. Amen? But what a, what a joy to have Pastor June and Sarah, you know, with us and what they're building. Uh, they had their launch service, correct? On Sunday. And 265 people, is that correct? Yeah. Come on. Now, we're especially happy that the fire marshal did not see that happen because I know people had to have been sitting, always in here. Okay, well, we're okay then. I thought, I was trying to picture 265 people up there. All right. Well, hallelujah. Third John 2. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in what? Good health as your soul prospers. We've looked at the happiness heresy, the challenges to developing a healthy soul, the poison of productivity of doing for God instead of doing with God. Last week, we began to look at becoming your authentic person, that God's design is very, very different. We only have to look at nature for a second, just for a second to see the diversity that God has, has built in. And our authenticity is actually a celebration of God's creativity. Just let that, let, let that one statement just, just sink in just for a moment that our authenticity is a celebration of God's creativity. And one of the major attacks of the enemy is to, try, is, is to try to attack that authenticity, that distinctness, and to sort of create a type of uniformity. And the world loves uniformity. Why? Because it's very, very easy to cheaply reproduce and it's easy to control. Hear me. That's why real reproduction, kingdom reproduction, it doesn't just make just little automaton miniatures but yet, there's a sense of the DNA of the divine. Yes, it can be DNA in, in, in families, in spiritual families that come forth in that reproduction. But they're not just coming off an assembly line. And our design is not a bad thing with the correct prerequisites in place and the right priorities. C.S. Lewis, that the more we allow God to take us over, the more we truly ourselves we become we invented he invented all the different people that you and I were intended to be it's marvelous and it's not just us allowing Christ to live through us but it's us living through him and it's when we both understand that design and allow the spirit to empower that design that the fullness of that which God has created in you and in me can come forth. 
And a revelation of self without the prerequisite revelation of Christ just leads to some type of self-actualization which can often get us lost in narcissism and entitlement. I am, therefore I deserve. How many of you know it doesn't work quite that way? And your authenticity can only emerge and evolve as Jesus himself both validates and authenticates you. Last week we talked about feelings. Certainly feelings are something that we should be suspect of. And yet we know that God himself has this tremendous palette of emotion. The only difference in God's emotions and yours is one of motivation. God is not motivated out of emotion like you and I. God is motivated by a plan, working out in conformity with his will. And yet many times it's through those palette of emotions that God defines who we are. Well, I shouldn't feel that way. Well, maybe you shouldn't, but you do. And you can only deny that for so long before you begin to deny the very essence of who you are. Why does that bother me? Why does that excite me? Why does that make me angry? Why does that bring me joy? It's through all of these emotions that as we begin to look at this palette, we begin to get a real picture and a definition of the whole person that God has made you and myself to be. Hmm. And yet it's going to take courage, ladies and gentlemen. Courage. What did they tell Joshua? They said, have courage. You got a great plan. You're going to take us into something. But you got to have courage to do it. And it's going to require that to be the persons that God has created us to be. And it's going to require faith to do that which he's called us to do and live the lives he's marked out for us. So last week we talked about accepting the distinctions and embracing the differences. Is that there are no better or worse types of people and personalities. My wife right now has gotten fascinated with this. I don't even know what it is. She just looked up in alarm. But it's, it's this, it's, it's, the whole design and dressing and color, and I don't want to advertise for somebody, but she's really big right now, and, and, and this, this, this dear lady has come up with this, this, this whole dressing scheme that you type your personality, and then the type of clothes and the palette of colors that one wears should reflect that personality. And then if you're not wearing the right the right clothes or you don't have the right colors, then your personality and the way you present yourself are somehow in conflict and you confuse people. And I said, sweetheart, I've been preaching a long time. Confusing people is what I do, regardless of what color that I, I choose to wear. And so now my wife has gone through my closet and she has this little chart. She's typed me as some, as I'm a type three, whatever that means, all right? I'm a type three, which means there are certain colors that I should be wearing so as not to confuse you. <laughs> whatever she says. I mean, so all I know is that my wife is, she dresses wonderfully and she's very pretty and I don't care what she wears, she looks good to me. 
But it's very important for her now that we're color coordinated according to our personalities. You may ask her about that on your own time. Thank you very much. But it's accepting those distinctions. My wife begins to read out these personality traits that go with these color charts. She's just like, well, you're mostly a three, but you've, you've really got some two in there somewhere too. And you're a little bit of four. I said, yeah, I'm schizophrenic. I've known that for a long time. And so all of these personalities are converging in there. And yet there's some dominant ones as well. I guess that's the loudest voice. But it's none of them are effective. This is what's important. Is that we accept the distinction, we embrace the differences, and we reject the lie of the enemy that somehow that unique design that God has put together in you and in me somehow was defective. And you know, many times that gets reinforced. Maybe you were in a family where you were somehow compared and contrasted with a sibling. Don't know. Why can't you be more like? We've all heard that. Come on. We had teachers that unwittingly did that to us. You know, why can't you be more like so-and-so over there and, you know, do your homework and keep your hands to yourself because I'm not that person. Thank you. Because we didn't tell the teacher that, at least not in those words. So accepting the the distinctions. Peter Scazzaro in the book by which we're basing this series around, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, he talks about three temptations that threaten each one of us. And each in its own way says, God's love for you will never be enough. You're not lovable. You're not good enough. And here are the three temptations that Peter Scazzaro sets forth. The first one is, I am what I do. I am what I do. Matthew 4, 3, one of the temptations of the devil to Jesus. If you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. I mean, up to that point. Jesus hasn't done anything to really manifest his divinity. We haven't seen him do any miracles. And so in this moment, the devil is saying, if you really are who you say you are, then let's see a little something, something here, J-boy. Come on, make it happen. The same way that they were taunting him when when he was hanging on the cross. If you really are who you say you are, come down from there. Do something to prove who you are. Wow, do something extraordinary. Impress us. And the challenge is that when we, what happens when we change or we lose our function? In other words, if I am what I do, what happens when what I do changes? Uh Uh-oh, stay with me here. If I have wrapped up the totality of who I am as a mother or a father, and all of a sudden the little people are all gone, 
and this is how I've defined myself for the past 20 or 25 years. Now what I've done is gone. I don't know who I am anymore. And ladies and gentlemen, that is not so uncommon a crisis that many couples face because they've not stepped back and realized I'm more than just the feeder of food and the provider of resources and the whooper of backsides when the time comes. Is that there really is more here than just that one thing. And if I've learned anything is that function changes throughout our lives. Calling doesn't change. Gifting doesn't change. But function does change. We can set ourselves up for a crisis. Temptation number two is I am what I have. What do we possess? And as you know, many times, everybody's trying to figure out what is the 1%. Everybody's trying to figure out, am I in the 1%? I don't think so. It doesn't feel like it. Visa doesn't seem to think so. But I am, I'm defined by what I have. And how many of you know that it is this competitive, consumeristic, this competition of looking around and saying that if I drink this soft drink or if I eat this food or drive this car or live in this particular home, then somehow I'm defined by all of these things. And yet much of, much of what drives the advertising industry is that very insertion of can't you see yourself in a new Buick? Wouldn't you really rather have a Buick? I mean, come on. And this has been going on for decades. That somehow we're defined by what we own. But let me just challenge us again. In the ebb and flow of resources, and hear me well, we, would always, we always want to think that somehow our personal financial statements or our balance sheets are always doing this. But can I submit to you that I think that many times there's an ebb and flow of resources that come into and out of our lives. Hello? I remember, I, I, my wife and I had an inheritance, little windfall some years ago. And it, I mean, it wasn't a million dollars or a hundred thousand, but, but it was for us at the time, you know, it was greater than $17.11. And so it meant something to us in that moment. And I mean, so, you know, you're thinking, you know, it's just like, all right, I'm in the black here. This is really good. We could, and one of the men of God that walks with me and kind of helps look over my life, he said, you know, when God delivers windfalls like that, he's really interested to see what you're going to do with it. It's not just that you can go out and just kind of write your own checks, but it really is a test from heaven. As to what are you going to do now? Are you willing? We've been willing to submit our finances when we didn't have any. Oh, God, help me. But now that we got a little something, now is, is, is Jesus still in the middle of all that? And throughout our lives, there may be an ebb and flow of resources. But what happens if we get defined by what we have? The great stock market crash of, say, which one? The big one, 29. 
and folk that had been defined by what they thought they were worth on paper. And I mean, folks doing what? Leaping off of buildings. Because all of a sudden now they could not imagine not only being broke, they had no idea who they might be if they did not have X amount of dollars. Interesting. It's Cazero again, temptation number three, I am what others think. Popularity. And some of us are addicted to this. Scazzaro, and I quote, true freedom comes when we no longer need to be somebody special in other people's eyes because we know we are lovable and good enough. Wow. And you see, the challenge with this temptation, I am what other people think, it leads us into this thing the Bible calls the fear of man. The fear of man. And let me ask you this question. Are you willing to live a life that you know will probably disappoint other people? You know, it's easy to live a life where we can do things and people will affirm us and, and, and acclaim us and say, boy, yeah! But are we willing to live a life, follow Christ into that life, when we know in advance we're going to disappoint some folks? Wow. Let me give you an example real close to home. We just had a campus conference here this past, within the past couple of weeks. I'm getting old. It's hard to keep all this together. Got a lot going on here at this church. Do you know who the real modern heroes of the faith are? Our campus missionaries. Think about this just for a moment. Here's a man or a woman and mom and dad have sent them off to university and they're going to go out and they're going to get that degree and they're going to get that job and they're going to be defined by what they do and what they have. And then they have this encounter with Jesus. And then God begins to speak to them about something that he's put on the inside that now has been illuminated by the Holy Ghost. And, he, and this, this young man and woman gets to come home and say, Mom and Dad, when I graduate, they say, yeah, well, yeah, are you, you got a job? I'm not going to use my degree at all. Thank you for sending me here, but I'm going to follow Jesus and God's calling me to go back on campus. And rather than go out and get a job, I'm going to ask other people for money. And they call it MPD. I'm going to go develop partnerships. And you know what? Pastor Brett, myself, other pastors, we've had to help some young folk navigate their conversation as they come back with a burning call of God to go serve their campus. And mom and dad, is they're just, their brains are scooching out of their ears because they don't get it. And in many cases, some of them, particularly if they don't have a relationship with God, they're disappointed. And this young campus missionary now has to deal with both what they know is the calling of God, but yet the disappointment of the, of the two people that they most desperately want affirmation from on the planet. And they have to live in the conflict of that. Now, the good news is, in many of these cases, mom and dad come around, mom and dad get to know Jesus. But you can, you can see the conundrum that gets presented here of realizing 
I may disappoint the very people that allowed me to come into this setting. My goodness. Jesus disappointed a lot of folks. Yeah, he fed a bunch, healed a bunch, but he also left poor people behind. He also walked past people he didn't heal. His family thought he was nuts. The religious community didn't get from him what they wanted. The authorities were scared of him. This is, this is the guy? This is the one we've been waiting for? Jesus disappointed quite a few folk. And could I say, not just as a historical fact, but could I also submit to you, Jesus continues to disappoint a few people. Because the way that Jesus presents himself to them and the way that God says, I'm not really coming to do it your way and bless your thing. I'm calling you to die to self and come pick up your cross and follow me and do it my way. And people realize, oh, wait a minute. I thought this was just give my 10 and pray a prayer and everything was going to be good my way. And he's, no, 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 I want it all. And some folk get disappointed in that. Oh, my goodness. Expectations of what he would do, who he would be. What will they think? Moses disappointed a few folk. Tried to talk God out of the job for two chapters. Please send anybody else but me. No, no, no. You the one. And yet brought that entire nation out of generations of bondage. Brought them out into the desert for them to do what? Moses, you and your God, you are amazing. Thank you. Every day that we're here, we are so grateful to you. They weren't, they could, still in the rearview mirror. Man, we're going to die out here. Ain't no water. Ain't nothing to eat. You brought us out here to die. Moses, you're a disappointment to us. Even to the point that that disappointment finally seeped into Moses' own soul. God, if you're going to deal with me like this, please kill me now. And let me just tell you, that was not a prayer like a child having a tantrum in the Walmart. That was a man intimate enough with God that he knew God would take him real seriously in a moment like that. Moses having to lead millions of people. That he realized that his leadership was a continual disappointment. But I tell you, when you have an encounter with the living God and vegetation begins to talk to you. And you go out to the tent of meeting and God begins to speak to you mouth to mouth, breath to breath as a man speaks with his friend. All of a sudden, knowing that you've got that intimacy with God and you're doing exactly what God's called you to do, somehow it begins to, te to, to temper the disappointment horizontally just a bit. Everybody with me so far? Proverbs 29, 25 says, fear of man will prove to be a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4.3, I carry very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. I don't even judge myself. Wow. But then we have to move from refining 
who is doing the defining. Because everybody's got an idea of who you're supposed to be. What you should do. What you should look like. And again, we're bombarded with this in media. This is why every year everybody's out there, you know, they're, 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 they're measuring their cuffs and they're measuring the width of their lapels and they're trying to get their hair right and, because somebody has defined for 2018, this is what you should look like. This is the flavor of Nikes that you should, you should buy this year. Don't you wear those old busted 17 Nikes. <laughs> everybody laughing nervously, just trying to cover their feet. You know, it's all right. And so we're, it's, it's, it's a real important thing, but the question is, we've got to refine who's doing that defining. David certainly defined wrong by the very people that should have defined him correctly, his own family. It took the presence of Samuel the prophet coming in and having to call him in from the fields to say, here's your man, Gideon, defining himself wrongly. And ladies and gentlemen, this is why you need the right people around your life, listen to me, defining you correctly. Because even the mirror will define you wrong. What you think you know about yourself many times will define you incorrectly. This is why you need people like Pastor Brad or Pastor Duke or Pastor Donnell, whoever it might be, to say, no, 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 no. Mighty man of valor, mighty woman of valor, mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the absolute dumbest of them all? Let me just tell you, you shut that mirror up and you begin to hear certain things. I've got prophecies that have been spoken about me. Paul wrote to his young church, Timothy. He said, war, a good warfare with what? With the prophecies once made about you. I've got prophecies that go back for decades. I had a prophet give me a word in the past month, 10 minutes long, unpacking the next 10 years of my life. Most of the time, us prophetic guys don't get prophetic words. This was a big one. Haven't had a word from this particular prophet in probably 15 years. But let me just tell you, it redefined my defining. Because where I was thinking this, God was thinking this. Everybody getting me here tonight? Everybody's mighty quiet. Moses, who am I to do all this? You see, Jesus refused to be defined or confined to man's understanding or what they wanted him to be. Why? Because he knew who he was. Why? Because the Father had to find him. This is my son, whom I love, with whom I am what? Well pleased. At his baptism, and again, when he was transfigured on that mountain. His Father affirmed him. He defined him. Could I say to you that the Father likewise has defined you in exactly the same terms? This is my son. This is my daughter. I love them, and I'm well pleased with you tonight. Interesting. Number four, 
is a contrasted or counterculture. And I've, I, used to, I used to talk about counterculture, but I read a book last year that really began to take exception to that terminology because counter, number one, it has a negative connotation, but secondly, it sounds like it's going in the opposite direction. But in reality, what God has called you and me to be and that which we are known as the church is not just to be against something, amen? It's not just that we are against the world, but we are to be contrasted with it in the midst of it. We're supposed to be a completely different people. James chapter four, verses four through five. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? And I've said this so many times, but let me just say, as somebody who's, who, number one, is, as a shepherd, loves the church. I love the church because I love the people who are the church. But from, the, from a prophetic perspective, realizing that it is now through the church and only through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is going to be made known, not only in the heavenly realms, but in this earthly realm as well. We're it. Come on. We're it. It's not Democrats and Republicans and blue states and red states or CNN or Fox or I mean, it's, it's a, some form of government or anything else or it's some economic system. You and I as the church, we are it. We are the last stand. Seven of you got it. Good. We're it, but only to the extent that we're willing to stand against the culture. And I've said it before, the tragedy, the great tragedy of the church in the modern era is accommodation. It's accommodation. And in that accommodation that we many times we think, well, that's, it's, it's how are we going to be evangelistic? Could, could I just tell you that 99 years on the planet, Billy Graham was absolutely consistent. There was never a charge brought against him of immorality, of messing with money. This was a man that almost without exception among church leaders, that nothing ever stuck to him. Stuck to him. Stuck to him. My wife won't be able to sleep for days that I said that, all right? Nothing stuck to him. He's from North Carolina. It's okay. I'm sure he understands from heaven. Why? Because like Popeye said, I am what I am. This man knew who he was. And he stood against the world. He really did. First Peter, you're chosen, you're royal priesthood, a holy nation that God has called out of darkness. Are we living our lives in such a way that we are a contrasting culture to everything else going on around us? And say, what does this have to do with emotional health? Everything. Because it speaks to your authenticity. Guess what, ladies and gentlemen? Now that the Spirit of Christ lives on the inside of you, you are not good sinners anymore. 
You ever seen somebody in the world? They do sin well. I mean, they really do. They do sin good. Because there's no Holy Spirit, their conscience has become seared. There's no little, you know, right and wrong sense on the inside, but you and I. Man, we get close to the electric fence. We don't even have to put our hands on it. And the longer we walk with God, rather than stepping up to it to see if it's hot, we step as far away from it as we possibly can. Why? Because we want to be different. And it's in that difference that we're authenticated as belonging to God. Of God being alive in us. And lastly, to have a truly authentic life, parts of it must be lived alone and alone with God. And this sounds like I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth. But didn't you just say we needed the right people to define us? Yes, it did. But let me just say when it comes down to it, part of your life is going to have to be lived alone. Part of it, we can just look at the pattern of Jesus. Luke 5, 16, Jesus withdrew to what? Lonely places and prayed. His instructions of prayer, Matthew 6, 6. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who is unseen. Habakkuk chapter 2, 1. I will climb up to my watchtower. What does that mean? It means a place above. No one else is there. Alone. Ten years ago, God spoke to my wife and myself to move. We had a beautiful home in Ashburn. He talked to us, you know, go go to the mountain, downsize. And we did it. So we bump up and down 66 to get here from a little place called Linden. But there was more than just getting ahead of what happened to the economy in 2008. It was more than just the principle of downsizing. It was God saying, I want, to, I, want, I, I want to create a setting for you where you can withdraw. That you can go up to the mountain and you can find me in a unique way. I was sharing with, somebody, with someone in my office not too long ago. I was a strange child. I don't think that would be much of a secret, much of a stretch for most of you. I wasn't athletic. I have no large motor skills. The fact that I, have, I can just walk and not fall is somewhat of a miracle. I was an only child to boot. And so where many of my peers were playing football or basketball and they were, on, they were doing team sports, you know, kind of, you know, Mr. Clumsy Uncoordinated here was spending a lot of time by himself. I didn't even have a sibling to blame broken stuff on. And so I developed a love to read. I read read voraciously. I played musical instruments. I practiced. I was was pretty accomplished at an an early age. He said, what does that have to do with anything? But it occurred to me that even as a child, God was preparing me. He was wiring me emotionally as he called me as a prophet years later. 
Before I ever knew who Christ was, God was still laying the groundwork in my emotions, wiring me, not being afraid of being alone for extended periods of time. Everything that was needed for me to do what God has called me to do, God was laying in my life even as a child. Amazing. And you're going to have to live some of this alone with God. And if you're looking to be completely understood, there's only one person in one place that you're ever going to find that. And that's with him. Forty years of living with the same spouse. We still don't get each other. Not a day goes by. Now we've learned, I've learned not to do the eye roll anymore. And I've, I've really worked on all the facial tics and the body language. I mean, I've really learned to keep it all in check. Mostly. But there's still times it's just like, I don't get her at all. I love you, honey. I just don't understand you. And she does the same thing with me. But I tell you, if I'm looking for her to validate me, if she's looking for just me to validate her, then we're putting expectations on one another that sadly are doomed for failure. Because it's only in that relationship of that being alone with God that he comes and he validates and authenticates who you really are. And once you, once you got it, you have to not just identify it, but you've got to guard and protect it. If you need, you got to fight for it. Because once again, the devil wants to snatch away the essence of who you really are. Telling you that there's something that's inherently wrong with what God has made. And I'll close with this, saints. Do you realize in that accusation, it's not just about you, it's an accusation against God. That somehow God made a mistake. And God never does.